Good morning, everyone. <laughs> it's good to see you all. It is a beautiful day. A few announcements. Uh, the first is Happy Mother's Day. Yes. We appreciate our moms. Um, also, the 22nd of this month, so 22 May will be the AGM after service, so I invite you to stick around for that. Um, that's our annual meeting. And then uh, the 25th will likely be a worship night. So that's a Wednesday. Um, and there'll be more information on that to come. So it should be a great time. And it is such a blessing to be in God's Word together and to walk with Jesus, to follow Him, to trust Him, and to grow in faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for being our Father, for adopting us as your children, for giving us new life and hope, forgiveness and, and salvation through Jesus. And thank you for the things you have to speak to us in your word and that you do know what we need even before we ask. And how many times have you provided uh, things we didn't even think to ask for? Because you're merciful, because you're compassionate, because you know that we are limited and that you don't want us to uh, stay self-reliant and self-confident, but to be looking to you, to humble ourselves. And so we do that now, Lord. We humble ourselves and bow before you, and we ask that you would have your way in our hearts and minds, and you would fill us with your spirit and guide us in your truth, and we'd receive and rejoice in all you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 1. It got me thinking about my earliest memory of loss with a sense of permanence to it. Uh, I chipped my teeth trying to skateboard in year three. And uh, I, I hadn't considered that morning when I was going out that there was the chance of permanent damage to my face. And I, I just fell on my face and chipped some teeth. And by afternoon, the dentist had fitted me with some temporary caps and my teeth were never the same. I was... I was sad about what happened, but I was also grateful that there was dentistry and that I could have teeth to chew with and smile with. And, uh, but that horrible feeling of like, this is a permanent problem. I have this permanent damage now, and it's right on my face. It must have been like a fraction of what Adam and Eve felt when they had been in paradise, and it was suddenly gone, and there was no hope of regaining it again. I mean, being in fellowship with God, being in paradise, and then having it lost forever, no longer welcome in the garden, being just dying spiritually and not having that fellowship with God anymore, they were driven out. And Adam had been tasked previously with tending the garden and keeping it, and now he had to scratch out a living from the ground that was cursed because of his sin. Eve's sorrows would be multiplied in conception and bearing and raising children. And, but when God cursed the serpent, there was this glimmer of hope in the seed from the woman that would crush the serpent's head. So there was this hope. But can you imagine having paradise, being in fellowship with God, being without sin, and suddenly having it all ruined forever? I can't really imagine that. Like we've never had it and we can just long for it, but to have it and then to lose it and to know you could never get it back. You could never go back to how things were. That is a terrible feeling. There would always be a temptation to compare how things were better then than they are now. Say, man, when I used to water, man, only good things would come up. Now, thorns. 
I used to tend the plants and we would eat good fruit. Now the fruit is rotten. Now there's parasites and things that we hadn't dealt with before. We don't read about until after the fall. Things that are like thorns and thistles. And, but at the same time, despite the curse, God remained just as good after the fall as before. And God redeemed the fall in that he could now reveal his love, his compassion, his mercy in a way that he couldn't when everything was perfect, when there was no need to show mercy, when there was no need to forgive. There was no need for help because everything had already been provided, like God had made everything, but now they needed his provision. They recognized it. Like, that wasn't just because I was a good gardener. That was because God did it, and we need him. When Adam chose to name his wife Eve, that means life or living, it showed faith that new life would come. There was this hope now that they would, he laid hold of with both hands. This hope of new life and victory over the serpent by the, his wife's seed yet to be born. There was this expectancy that God's word would soon be fulfilled, but there would be tragedy before triumph. Let's pick up our text in Genesis 4. Verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. This verse is really a delicate and insightful way to describe sexual intercourse in the marriage union. This, this verse actually laid the foundation for my sex education as a child. We were reading this verse around the table, and I'm like, something about that phrase is odd. What actually happened there? Something had to happen because he obviously knew who his wife was. He named her. He recognized her. How did he know her? What does that mean? So I, was, I, I stuck around after dinner and had an explanation about what that meant. Um, but yeah, they became one flesh in that covenant of marriage, that their sexual union, it affirmed physically the relationship that they had entered into as one flesh before God. Think of receiving communion, for instance. We receive the broken bread and the cup in obedience to affirm the work that Jesus has done in us, that he has saved us, that we have entered into the covenant uh, of Christ's blood. We've been born again. So it's an outward obedience that aligns with God's internal work, what God has done. We know marriage is God bringing two people together, making one flesh. So it's an outward obedience that aligns with that internal work, that physical observance of a spiritual reality inside, right? And this knowing is the same thing, that the sexual bond, it serves for more than just personal enjoyment or procreation, but that the bodies of a, a wife and husband will be joined physically because God has joined them together as one in the covenant of marriage. So it completes that picture. Eve conceived, she gives birth to a son named Cain. That means possession. She's like, I have acquired, like here he is. I have acquired a man from the Lord. And it's possible she thought Cain would be the one to destroy the curse, uh, to crush the serpent's head. And why not? When we hear that something good could happen, we want it to happen as soon as possible. Um, then she had Abel. 
And Abel was a shepherd and tended sheep. Cain was a farmer who tilled the ground. And some people think Cain and Abel are twins. From the reading here, I don't get that sense. There's other times in the Bible where we're told very plainly that they were twins. So, and I don't really see why that matters. Um, because in the history of the world, no one shared as many genes as they shared. They didn't have any grandparents. They had mom and dad. And, uh, but they were like chalk and cheese. They were so different from one another. They had different occupations. As we'll see, they had different hearts before the Lord. That uh, the, their actions they took in approaching God and responding to God were totally different. Polar opposites. Verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. I feel it's important to say that as we go through the book of Genesis, the divine revelation of God in this book, we don't get all the details. We only get some. It's like God, as the author, he knows where he's going with the story, that there are significant events and significant people and all really leading to Jesus Christ. Uh, so that's why we're told particular things. It's like we, there's a lot more that we don't know than we do know, because we know that Adam and Eve had other children besides Cain and Abel. Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock. And notice it says, God had respect or showed regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now notice it was not the offering that made the offerer acceptable. Because God had accepted Abel, his offering was accepted. Because God did not respect Cain, he had refused Cain, rejected Cain, as we'll see why, he refused his offering. God will not be bribed. Ecclesiastes 5.1, it, it tells us that the sacrifice of the evil is sin. They don't realize that this sacrifice is not good. It's clear from the text that both knew that their offering had or had not been received. We don't know how it was done, but maybe fire from heaven. That's something that we do see throughout the Bible. At times, um, the, the sacrifice would be consumed with fire, and they knew it was accepted. Now, it's a human tendency, isn't it, to, to think that our sacrifice can make us acceptable to God. Like because of all the things we've done or all the things we've given, God's entitled, like really I'm entitled to be respected and to be received by God because of the things I've done for him. Scripture says otherwise. The law had not been given. I don't believe the problem was that one had offered fruit while the other an animal from the flock because we'll see when the law came, they were both acceptable. There were times that you, could, you were to offer the first fruits. Um, turn to Hebrews 11.4. It actually tells us why God had respect to Abel and his offering. Don't you want your offerings to be accepted by God? Because that shows that you have been accepted by God. See how they go together. Accepting the person makes this offering acceptable. Hebrews 11.4, it says, By faith, 
Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it being dead still speaks. So faith in God made all the difference. That's what made Abel acceptable in God's sight and his offering was received. It wasn't that God preferred a lamb over fruit. He was looking at the hearts, something he goes throughout all scripture and does. Abel gave to God from a heart of faith in Cain. Cain came with some other motive. Perhaps he brought an offering out of duty. He saw Abel doing it and figured, well, I'm not going to be outdone by him. Or to show that he was better in some way. Well, I think this is giving of the field is better than of the flock. And maybe he thought about what favor he could receive from God if his offering was received. Like, this could benefit me. Abel's faith in action. And faith is always, it's an action word. It's something that you choose to do and it has corresponding actions. His offering was brought by faith, was deemed righteous, Cain's offering without faith, evil. 1 John 3, 12, it tells us Cain went on to murder Abel. There's a little spoiler because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. That's why his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's why he slew him. And when his offering was rejected, Cain's response, it says he was very angry. He felt entitled to respect from God. He was furious that his brother had received from God that which had been denied him. He was crestfallen. We don't read of him asking like, well, why isn't my offering? Like there was no conversation. He's just mad. He's embittered. He's pouting. He's, he's furious. And it was God who graciously spoke to him. And he used that same tone that we see later with the prophet Jonah. Very loving. He says, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? He appeals to his conscience, his ability to reason. He's, he's trying to get him to look at his own heart. To, to consider, why are you angry? Instead of being angry with his brother or God, it was better that he examine his own heart and say, well, why am I angry? Is it justifiable? And he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Like there was hope for him. There was hope to be accepted by God. It wasn't God's rejection of him wholesale, but if he did what was right, if his heart was right before God in humility and faith, he would be accepted by God. And then he also gave him a warning. He says, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Satan lurked in the tree to deceive Eve and God personifies sin like a, a lion crouching by the door of his heart, waiting to pounce, waiting to devour. God gave man a will that should rule over sin, but do we always do what we should do? We don't. Um, at times, we cannot do what we should do, or sometimes we don't want to do what we should do. Right? I knew I, I should stay on my feet when I'm riding a skateboard, but I didn't. I fell down and ate concrete instead. That's what I did. Um, there are times where you know you should not do something, but you do. Like Adam, he knew he should not eat of that tree, but he chose to eat from that tree anyway. What came next is 
Cain, he really deserves no sympathy for accidentally not having faith. Because his pride, his arrogance, his unbridled anger, his lack of faith, and the lack of fear of God would result in murdering a righteous man, his own brother. See how quickly sin spirals? Eve needed to be talked into sin by the devil, and now Cain cannot be talked out of it by God. God is speaking to him. God is just beckoning him to consider his ways and to come to him in faith, and we'll see that he'll go his own way. Genesis 4, 8. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose against, up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. The NIV, it presents Cain saying, let's go out into the field. Okay, this is not an argument. This is not a debate. Uh, this, is, this is not a quarrel. It's a premeditated murder of his brother because his works were evil and Abel's were righteous. Now, how true is God's word that he said sin would bring death, shockingly by the hands of a brother? Cain knew where his brother's body lay, and when God said, where's your brother? Where's Abel? He says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? His response is like, I am not beholden to speak to you, God. I am not beholden to answer you. There is no fear of God in that answer. And the rise of self, the lack of fear of God, they go hand in hand. It sounds like Cain's offended that God had the audacity to ask him anything. And this anger unchecked, it led to murder. God had warned Adam in the garden that the day you sin, you will surely die. He had warned Cain, sin is waiting to devour you, but he did not pay heed. God warned to confess and repent before it led to this, that if Cain did not master his sin, it would master him and it would impact others. And it's no wonder that God would refuse that offering by this man because he could see what was in his heart, that it was unacceptable and that Cain chose to destroy his brother for his own failure rather than to humble himself before God in repentance. Now, Cain was a farmer. He knew the difference. He knew the, how, thing, how sowing and reaping works, that the seed sown and cultivated, it would produce fruit after its own kind. Walking in the fear of God, that results in humility and obedience and wisdom but folly, it would lead to envy and hypocrisy, offering a gift to God at one moment and then killing your brother the other. Turn in your Bibles, please, to James chapter 3, verse 13. We see uh, a comparison that's as stark as Cain and Abel here. James 3, 13 through 17, and the reason why this is being warned is because this can be an issue in the lives. Sin is a problem in the lives of believers as well as unbelievers. And we know what we should do sometimes, but we don't always do it. So here we have a good reminder. 
James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Our actions, they have the ability to demonstrate the meekness of wisdom in hearing God, obeying Him. It also reveals if our hearts are filled with envy because of our hateful words or self-seeking, selfishness, desiring, thinking only of ourselves. The fear of God, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom, but self-seeking, this wisdom of the world, it justifies self. It does not answer to God. The fear of God produces peace. And I love these, the fruit of the fear of God, gentleness, willingness to yield and listen, full of mercy, good fruit, without hypocrisy, without favoritism. And God asked Cain, knowing full well, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So Cain's trying to avoid being implicated by anything in Abel's bloody death, yet it could not be hidden from the God who sees, hears, and knows all. It's like he tried to avoid responsibility, but he, and he could cover it up, but he couldn't silence it. He couldn't silence the blood because God heard it. God knew everything that had transpired in that field, and he would hold him accountable whether or not he admitted his guilt. It was not for Cain to like, okay, I admit it. So because I deserve it, I'll accept it. No, God pronounced a curse upon him. You are cursed because of what you've done from the earth. That the earth is no longer going to yield its strength to you. The blood was received by the earth from your brother. Your brother's blood was received by it. And now it's not going to produce anything like it did before. And this was in a cursed condition. Now you are cursed. It's like you're a curse wherever you go. Awful that he would be restless, fugitive, aimless, a vagabond, hopeless because of his sin. And because he went his own sinful way, he forfeited his place with God, his fellowship with God. And there was no way that he could return life to Abel or that he could undo what he had done. And there was no chance on his own that Cain could be restored to that relationship with God he once enjoyed. He couldn't reverse the curse and the curse that he was the rest of his days. Verse 13, And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Was Cain in the least bit sorry for what he had done? Not at all. He really isn't thinking about Abel or his parents or the implications of what he's done at all. It's only about him. My punishment is greater than I can bear. He is the focus. And all he could think about is how hard he had been done, like, I've been hard done by, 
My life is now a, a mess. The, ter- the punishment you're giving me is so terrible. He's blaming God for the punishment. And that, even though it was less than he deserved, a life for a life, God permitted him to live. God would protect him even though he had sinned. And he blamed God for the severity of his judgment. And um, he's just concerned that now he's vulnerable. You've made me a marked man. Anyone who finds me will kill me. He wanted to be spared from death himself, though he killed Abel. As a kid, I used to have a microscope, and it wasn't the most useful thing, but I could see some, uh, like I wanted to see cells and stuff. It wasn't that powerful. Um, But I could see like the hairs on the leg of a flea, which was pretty cool. You could just look at them and go, wow, there's all this going on. Well, when we look at, when we take a little look at Cain, what you're doing is looking at yourself under a microscope and seeing how you really are. This is a little picture of you. This is a picture of me in our flesh, apart from God, where we are just conceited and full of ourselves and not beholden to God. That's that sin that's naturally found in each one of us. It's on full display here. That attitude, right? As a parent, you're like, I, I get that attitude from someone. You and you you recognize an attitude, let's say in a child, maybe your own child, that you it grates upon you, and then you realize that that's actually, it grates on me because it's like me. <laughs> and I know it's not right. I should not be that way, but I, I can be that way. I am that way. Um, so it's good for us to consider our hearts and say, like, why am I annoyed with the same thing that I do? I ought to confess that, forsake it. So instead of destroying Cain for his sin, God puts a mark on him. There's a lot of conjecture. There's no evidence in scripture what this mark is, how people could know that vengeance would be taken sevenfold on any who killed him. We're not told. And you might wonder, well, who is he concerned about? Because all we've heard about is Cain and Abel. Well, we read further on in Genesis 5-4, it's evident that Adam and Eve had many more children. It says, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. As we'll see in the Genesis account, in the antediluvian period, that's before the global flood of Noah, people had many children over many years. It wasn't like childbearing years for us is, you know, what, 15 to 45-ish? Like if you say like your peak time where people tend to have kids, it's going to be in that period. Well, when you're living 800, 900 years, you can have a lot of kids and, uh, I, they don't ever, God never tells us how many children they had. Um, and so there were many children. We see Cain, Abel, and Seth. Those are the only people's names that we know that were born of uh, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Seth, they're included in the Messianic line. Remember, in Luke 3, uh, Joseph, as was supposed, the father of Jesus. We know he was sired by the Holy Spirit. And so this is just showing all together that, that line that came from the beginning. God set a mark on Cain. It says he went out from the presence of the Lord. It's like he, he decided to leave. He went out by his choice due to sin, similar to how Adam and Eve were sent out of Eden. And we don't see contrition, remorse, repentance, but self-pity, hardness of heart, anger, selfishness, envy, and murder, like all ugly things. He was permitted to survive and 
people like him have been permitted to continue living on the earth. Jude pronounced woe on those who go the way of Cain. Woe to those who go the way of Cain. And I really like how the Bible Knowledge Commentary describes the way of Cain. Because it's not just, the, it's not just him. There's a lot of people that walk in his ways. And it's described as a lack of faith which shows itself in envy of God's dealings with the righteous, in murderous acts, in denial of responsibility, and in refusal to accept God's punishment. It's just not answering to God, not feeling like you are entitled or required to answer to him. The way of Cain, it's to go your own way. It's to love yourself, to walk in pride, to destroy others, to justify yourself without the fear of God. And I think of that verse, it says, and such were some of you, right? We have walked in that way. Even since knowing Christ, we have dabbled or, or fallen into that path. But we have been born again. We have been forgiven. There was no hope given for Cain, but we have hope in Jesus Christ that the curse is destroyed and we have new life. We don't have to be who we were. We can be who Jesus has created us to be, like him, a child of God, born again of the Spirit. Praise him for that. Moving on in verse 17. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the second was Zillah, and Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. After Cain left the presence of God, and that's, that's so much, that's powerful, right? That he left the presence of God. He went out from the presence of the Lord and he dwelt on the east of Eden. And his wife conceived and bore a son named Enoch. Cain named the city that he built after him. Again, Cain married his sister or his niece. Adam was the first man. Eve was the mother of all living. God had commanded them to, um, to fill the earth and subdue it, to multiply. And the only way that you could do that was through them. So it was through their seed. And because they had many children, they had a long life, good genes, it made it possible to procreate and to fill the earth. And the law had not been given around what defines incest as we know today. And so there was nothing wrong about what they were doing. Paul affirmed also in Acts 17, 26, that God made from one blood every nation on earth. So there were not two different, uh, I guess, groups of people that came together. It was all from one, from one blood. We are all sons of Adam. Even the most strict Jewish interpretations of law make caveats for necessity as well. So even if the law had existed, I'm sure that they would say, well, like, like David, he, 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 was he needed bread, he needed to eat, and so he was able to eat lawfully of the showbread, which was only for the priests. But because his life was on the line, they made an exception. And so it's not difficult to see that this is uh, fine for the time. 
Now, generations after Cain, a man Lamech was born, and he's noted for his departure from God's design of marriage by polygamy. It says he took for himself two wives. And I think that's an interesting way that it's put. He wasn't given a wife. He took for himself two wives, and he corrupted the uh, covenant that God had made from the beginning between a one man and one woman. It wasn't long before God, after God created mankind that there would be this attempt to corrupt the covenant, a perversion of God's plan that's persisted to this day. We also see these rapid advancements, right? Jabal, the father of those who dwelt in tents, they herded livestock. And Jubal, he's a musician. He was skilled on the harp and the flute, and he's teaching others. And Tubal Cain, he's working with ore and refining it, making bronze and uh, iron implements. And this was a shift greater than the Industrial Revolution or the, the modern uh, digital age. It's like people are taking up new occupations, new forms of entertainment that had never happened before. They had never been in existence using the things that God had made to make new things and to have new pursuits. So they're tanning hides, they're spinning thread, they're weaving, they're mining, they're refining ore, they're smithing it into new tools and maybe weapons. They're enjoying composing and playing music and dance and skill and knowledge. They're being passed down from generations and these inventions changed the way people lived. The earliest humans, they weren't grunting savages, they were intelligent resourceful, creative, artistic, and industrious. And it just exploded from there. Verse 23, Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. This may be one of the oldest poems or poetic speech. So this man, he's giving this oration to his wives. He justifies killing a man because he had wounded him, perhaps in self-defense. We, we aren't told the situation. We know that people who could be guilty don't see themselves as guilty. He, he is obviously not ashamed of what he's done. He's not trying to cover up. He's, he's telling them what he did. And he was aware of that word that God had spoken over Cain, that sevenfold vengeance would be taken upon any who killed him. And he says, well, if Cain will be avenged sevenfold, Lamech will be avenged 70 times seven. He's boasting in his own strength and ability to avenge himself, to destroy anyone who would rise up to wound him. This is like a big, you just see the, degrade, the degradation of what happens without the fear of God. Where Cain is trying to hide it, Lamech's announcing without shame. He says, well, God's going to avenge him sevenfold? Well, I'll avenge myself 77-fold. <laughs> wow. Pretty wild. Like, like he's 70 times greater than God? This is the attitude. Such is the folly of man who thinks he's mightier or more worthy of fear than God. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also was born a son, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. 
Adam and Eve had a son named Seth. That means appointed or placed. No one could replace Abel. But she saw God as sovereignly giving her this child. Um, Her hopes dashed of Cain or Abel being the one who would crush the serpent's head and destroy the curse. But she believed that he would accomplish God's good purposes even though Abel's life had been tragically cut short. So there's this faith in God. She'd received this from God. This, and we see his son, Enosh, there was a revival. There was a rekindling in those days of men began to call on the name of the Lord. And you think, well, why hadn't they done that sooner? But men began to call on the name of the Lord. The faith of righteous Abel, men calling on the name of the Lord, that's bright spots in otherwise a very dark chapter in human history. Cain murders Abel because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain departs from the presence of the Lord. Sin multiplies with pride and boasting and killing. And as the population of people exploded across the earth over centuries without the fear of God, in the pursuit of power and pleasure, Pain and sorrow came to mankind like never before. It's like Abel's blood cried out from the ground and now living people cry out to God. They start seeking the Lord while they're living. They start crying out to God in a very dark place, in a very dark time. In a world and society that largely ignored, opposed, and hated God. And it took decadence, it took darkness without hope that drove mankind to seek God and to call out to him because they needed him. Praise the Lord, his light shines bright in dark seasons. The darkness and the feelings that we have of hopelessness, it does not shroud his goodness. It remains good. He remains perfect. And in Romans 15, 4, it says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. There is comfort for us in the Scriptures because of God. There is hope for us in what we read. Even how, if we are feeling deeply a loss or we're feeling like there's things that have happened that cannot be reversed and are hopeless, there is hope in God and the patient will look to him in faith. So let's not lose heart because God is patient and gracious. It wasn't through Abel. It wasn't through Seth. It would be over 70 generations later that Jesus would be born. It's a long time to wait. There's no word for like great, great, great seven times 70 grandparents. We can't even think that far back. But Jesus would be conceived with the Holy Spirit by the Virgin Mary, revealed as the Son of God who would save people from their sins. Man has long sought to establish his own righteousness, that he's not beholden to God, justifying himself, but still under the curse of sin and death. Turn, please, to Romans 10, verse 8. There is such hope for us in Jesus Christ, and it's so good for us to realize that we need him, We don't just need him for salvation. We need him every day to live the abundant life he desires and has called us to live. Like we need him. And sometimes we can substitute knowledge for seeking the presence of God. We can substitute our own sacrifices 
to feel like we're measuring up in some way when God desires we have faith in him and humble ourselves before him. Romans 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling upon the Lord, believing in Jesus, that's just the start of a relationship with God who saves us, who keeps us, who helps us and comforts us, who guides us into all truth. God does not exist to just get us out of trouble, but to draw us close to himself in faith, love and trust and I was thinking of Psalm 116, 12 and 13. It says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Because it's not to get salvation. It's because we've received salvation that we call upon him. We've already benefited from him. Even before coming to Christ, how ought we to love him and to trust him? We've already received his benefits. Do you call upon the name of the Lord having received his salvation? Do you offer a sacrifice to earn favor with God or to get what you want or because you have already received Christ by faith? Are you one who cries without hope when we have a God who hears our cries? We can call upon the name of the Lord with praise and gratitude and thanksgiving because he has heard us. Not to be heard, because he has heard. That's, why, that's what prompts us. He prompts us to call out to him. So that the, may the Lord do that work in us, that would turn our hearts to him, that we'd be like those who cry out to the Lord for all his benefits toward us. Not with the hope of blessing, because we are blessed. Because we've received Christ in his salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the power of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he became a curse for us who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. And thank you that you have made a way for us to have salvation, not just to get out of hell, but to, to be drawn into your presence daily, continually, because you hear us. And thank you that you invite us to come into your throne room of grace, to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And you tell us to make our requests known to you. And I pray we would avail ourselves of your power and of your presence as you continue to speak to us through your word. And I pray that the patience and the comfort of the scriptures, we would receive that. We would walk in it. We would receive your comfort because you are God and over all. And you are glorious and good. And you knew what you were working towards through the line of Seth that would go all the way to Jesus and has now passed to us, having received him by faith. Oh Lord, how great are your plans and your ways are past finding out. We thank you that there's forgiveness and salvation for us and oh, the benefits we've received from you already. 
It's almost a shame to ask you for more, but because we need you, Lord, we cry out. We cry out to you for help. We cry out to you for comfort. We cry out to you for wisdom and guidance to know the way to go, how to live in the way that pleases you. Teach us, Lord, to love you, to trust you, to fear you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.